Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. For those of you listening or watching online, good morning to you also. I'm Associate Pastor Mike Gilbert, filling in for Pastor Rick this morning. Uh, This morning, our text is going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in the first 12 verses. Uh, But in a moment, we're going to stand and read verse 14, kind of a a pivotal verse for us. So if you'd like to turn there, that's Matthew chapter 5. Verse 14, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Please be seated. In this chapter, Matthew chapter 5, and the two that follow it, uh, we have the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the first 12 verses, we have taught by Jesus what we know as the Beatitudes, uh, which is a word that means supreme blessing or or happiness. And what he attaches to these blessings uh, are statements describing the Christian character, character that is directly opposite to what the world places value upon. But that kind of character that brings righteous influence, a light into the world, So the title of this morning's message is The Light of the World, with this in mind, and of course taken from verse 14 that we just read together. A little bit of background on the text. Jesus had not long before this began his public ministry. John the Baptist at this point had been arrested and put into prison, and Jesus, as a priority, goes up into the area of Galilee in the north, through Nazareth and into Capernaum. This area was part of the allotment that was uh, during the time of Joshua to the, uh, given uh, to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. It also uh, was an area that is, was heavily afflicted by Assyrian invaders, and we read about that in 2 Kings chapter 15. In fact, it was an area that was frequently tread uh, by foreigners. It was occupied by uh, the Greeks and the Romans, and much of their culture, much of their idolatry represented there. And so it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles as a result. It was a very populated region, about 50 miles by 20 miles. There was a 10-city district in this area known as the Decapolis. Uh, It was basically a a grouping of cities uh, with heavy Greek and Roman influence, culture and worship, and this was an irritant to the Jews. This region of the Galilee that Jesus entered uh, into at the beginning of his public ministry was it was despised by, by most Jews for this reason. It was full of outcasts uh, living in an outlying area that was corrupt. It was in great spiritual darkness. But this was a top priority for him. And so we read in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, it says, In leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Well, it was love that brought him there to these people, steeped in darkness, and love attracted them to him, too. And we read in uh, Matthew 4 that 
He went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. And then it says, his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And although he, he did all these things to heal these broken people of their diseases and deliver them from their oppression, the message he preached was not about healing and deliverance. The message that he preached was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had been in darkness long enough, but now light was shining on them. And so the miracles that he did, they testified of his authority, they testified to his message. And uh, the light that was shining in the darkness, again, it was not a social gospel. It wasn't uh, only addressing their physical needs. It was love reaching out urgently to a broken, blind, a corrupt world. Uh, as Paul said to the men of Athens, commanding all men everywhere to repent, to be reconciled to God. And when the unloved know that they're loved, they'll be drawn to the messenger as they were to Christ. But love never compromises the truth. So as we come to chapter 5, we see that the Lord, in his compassion, uh, seeing the hurt and the distress and the conditions that were caused by sin, um, that had enslaved the people, he wanted to show them the way of blessing, the, the way of true happiness and fulfillment. But as it is so often with the lost, uh, they could not, they would not be able to receive the message. Uh, Paul said that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But to reach them, the, the message doesn't get changed uh, to somehow become more accommodating, more, more attractive, soft on sin. Uh, instead, the believer is called upon to continue preaching the truth, but also to live it out as a testimony, a witness to the blessing and the joy that accompanies those who have submitted to the Lord. And in doing so, it's shining the light, shining the light on the life that is the light of men, as John wrote of Christ. So the, the method that we see the Lord using as we start to look at uh, Matthew chapter 5 is that with this full view of the lost multitudes all around him and with a great deal of compassion for them, desiring to reach them, he redirects his attention to his disciples, actually. He calls them to himself to teach them and to equip them to go back to the lost multitudes and to show them the way of salvation, to live out before them the way of his kingdom, showing them what true happiness is, what true peace and fulfillment is, what the abundant life is, and to check their corruption, to be a stopping influence to the spread of immorality and sinful practices, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The application to our day, I think, is very clear. I believe we would agree with that as we see the spread of corruption and darkness all over. We see it in our government, our workplace, our schools. Our society is, is morally imploding, and uh, we no doubt live in dark times, but times that were not unanticipated by Scripture. Paul would write to Timothy, "...but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived." But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, 
knowing from whom you have learned them. So the times and the circumstances may change for the worse around us, but the truth of God's word and and our accountability to it, it remains the same. Jesus said that in the last days, he said lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. And it's becoming much easier, I think, in these days with all of the wickedness that we see around us uh, to become loveless towards those that are that are in darkness. And I think uh, we can many times look past the fact that these are captive souls that will spend eternity in hell apart from God, that they have been lied to by Satan, that they're in bondage to sin, miserable with no way out apart from Christ, just, just as we were. But it's wonderful to think also uh, you know, of the return of the Lord to us and to, to, to take us home. And I think we're tempted to do that sometimes. We're not tempted, but it's a blessing to know that he is going to return, I believe, very soon. But also, I believe it's a blessing uh, that we overlook that the Lord intended for us to be here at this time, at this time in history, when the curtains are closing before his return in order to shine the light of his love in these very dark days. That's still our commission There's an important connection in Scripture between our love to Christ and our ability to shine the light of his love to the lost. And hopefully uh, that will come out more as we study this section this morning. To be used to light the way for others, uh, his desire is for our hearts to be inflamed first for him. So we come now to verse 1 of of Matthew chapter 5. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And so we see in this, uh, there's a distinction between two groups, uh, the multitudes and the disciples. The multitudes were the crowds that had gathered to Jesus because of the miracles and because of what they saw him do, what they heard him preach. Many were attracted on the basis of Uh, wanting their fleshly needs met, but without a real genuine interest in in spiritual issues. Many would likely, uh, a few years later, cry out for him to be crucified. And uh, the disciples, though, these were his followers, those who were called into fellowship with him and who had responded in faith. And what Jesus has to say here Importantly to note is to the disciples, not the multitudes. They were, they were there, but his, his message is to the disciples. He's going to give them instructions in righteousness so that they could then return as a witness and show through their obedience and love the way of salvation and blessing. So a question arises, well, why wouldn't Jesus make these things known to the multitude? Because they would not appreciate it. Uh, the things that he was going to share, that many were looking for their fleshly needs to be met, and they had not the capacity yet to understand the spiritual need. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And so it is with the loss that we encounter. Uh, there must first be that attraction to Christ, and then that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit before the the things of the Spirit can be understood and appreciated. Paul, in writing to Titus, he speaks of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And it's interesting the word adorn in the Greek is where we get our words, our words cosmos and cosmetic from, having reference to to order and attractiveness. And that's what Paul is getting at, not having a, a sloppy witness. 
There is an order and attractiveness about how the believer's life is to be conducted that, that draws the unbeliever into a, into a place of serious question, questioning and to a place where they can receive the word. But when a believer's witness is sloppy, there's, there's no distinction, no attractiveness. And so the Lord is making his method of, of reaching the lost multitudes known, and that is through the lives of his disciples as they, as they live and function in the corrupt surroundings that are, that are in this world. Verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So in the next few verses, the Lord is going to describe his, to his disciples Christian character that is an effective influence for righteousness in the world with all its corruption, with all of its darkness. But in order to receive this instruction, there had to be a, a coming away to be with him, to be with the Lord, up a mountain no less. <laughs> and I think a lesson in this is that before we are able to have any effective ministry, there, there needs to be time with the Lord in, in personal, private devotion where he can teach us and give us insight into his word uh, that will enable us to be used to, to open the eyes of the blind spiritually. It's important also to see that Jesus' emphasis in the next few verses did not have to do with their doing the things that he described, but on their being those things, poor in spirit, those who mourn, etc. And this kind of character can only come to the child of God that is saved and is submitted to the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that's what makes it attractive. That's what makes it convicting because it's the power of God working out from the life of the believer. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the first word that, that Jesus used to describe this Christian character, the character of the disciple, is blessed, blessed. It's the same word that's, that's translated happy. And uh, interestingly, this was an unusual and a strong word uh, to be used to describe a person in that day. It generally was used to describe divine joy and perfect happiness, but to ascribe it to a person would not have seemed attainable. And so what he was describing uh, is a condition of perfect peace, Perfect joy and rest, not a temporal peace and a, a rest that the world is accustomed to chasing after, but divine peace and rest and true lasting blessing. Isaiah writes, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And, uh, you know, we may not always feel this way, but because we have the Lord who never changes uh, we have that available to us if we will trust him. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's actually an imperative that we do this. The unbeliever cannot rejoice always because all he has is uncertainty. And a little bit later, uh, in the same chapter, Paul would write, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So there's that divine peace, the peace of God, not only given to the believer, but guards the believer who, who will trust in the Lord. And I believe it's important to note that this particular uh, beatitude is the first. And as we go them, uh, go through them, we notice that they, they, they build upon each other. And this one, this 
poor in spirit or poverty of spirit is foundational to the others mentioned. To be poor in spirit, it does not suggest a, uh, a defeated or a downcast Christian witness. Uh, Jesus is explaining to his disciples the character that is to attract and uh, uh, to light the way uh, for the lost, and that would hardly be attractive. So what is meant by poverty of spirit is to recognize that the disciple has no spiritual assets of his own. And actually, Jesus used the more severe term for poor, uh, not describing someone that had little means, but someone who was completely bankrupt, someone who was reduced to begging. And so spiritually speaking, this is, this is where it begins for the believer, to realize that there is nothing I can cling to except Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So to be poor in spirit, this poverty of spirit, also is to have an accurate view of self. And that can't be done unless there is a genuine encounter with God. It's the result of of being in his presence. Daniel uh, writes of uh, an instance like this. He writes of his vision of the Lord in Daniel chapter 10. He says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was gold... (coughs) whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And then in verse 8 of Daniel chapter 10, he says, Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. I think the King James Version brings it out a little bit clearer what he's saying. It says, my comeliness was turned in me into corruption. Every bit of personal glory, esteem, accomplishment, or goodness was seen as utter corruption in the presence of God. And this was Daniel. There's nothing... There's nothing negative written about this man except that he did the the right thing. He was always doing the right thing. That was his only crime. And so... But this, the experience of being in the presence of God. Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then Peter in the New Testament, when he recognized the deity of Christ and that miraculous catch of of fish, Luke writes, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so here, a a right view of God. It will give me a right view of myself and everything else. And it will take away any sense of of personal goodness and, and leave me desperate for him, but it will also leave me in awe of his grace towards me. And Jesus says, Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, It seems that, you know, in this verse there is a contradiction of terms. The the word blessed, again, indicating happiness, supreme blessing. 
And this, Jesus says, is the condition of those who mourned. The meaning of mourning here is not just a light grieving either. It's this is intense grief, even wailing. And so how can blessing and mourning or suffering coexist this way? And the answer lies in a, the undiminished fact that no matter what is causing the heavy grieving, the Lord our God is continually with us, and we are continually with him. The unbeliever cannot say that. He's left to mourn. He's left to grieve uncomforted in this life and judged in the next. But may that unbeliever come into contact with a believing saint that is enduring the same suffering but is, is not without hope and is in fact strengthened, even to the point where they can say, as James says, count it all joy. Uh, what a light, what a testimony that is. The psalmist writes in Psalm 73, he says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Well, the reason for the vexation, uh, it could be a a recognition of personal sin uh, and failure, which I believe is... Uh, specifically in view here because it follows a a true encounter with God and that poverty of spirit, Uh, but also suffering, illness, seeing the sin that has corrupted the world so thoroughly. But nevertheless, the psalmist says, all these things being what they are, the believer is not one bit less with the Lord. And in fact, uh, often is given a greater sense of, of knowledge and experience of him that could have could not have been enjoyed or understood without the suffering. This is the believer's portion. This is the inheritance of the believer uh, in, in this life and then eternally with him in the next, where there is no sorrowing. And, uh, and it's to be enjoyed now. The Lord himself, the God of all comfort, we are continually with him, which means that we're always on his mind, we're always in his sight and in his hand and always on his heart. And... Uh, that in spite of the fact that our flesh and our heart fail. He holds us uh, and consoles us. What an incredible love uh, that God has for us, and what a cause for praising him. And Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So as the Lord continues his his teaching, uh, the disciples, the character of the one who is in his kingdom, who is submitted to him as Lord, he next describes the blessedness or the happiness of the meek. And the meek are not those who are weak, uh, they can be used mightily to intervene on behalf of others when need be. They are, they are those who have had, uh, again, a genuine encounter with God. They have been in his presence. They have rightly seen themselves in his light, and therefore they don't have a high opinion of themselves. They, they understand in increasing measure just the, the awesomeness, the holiness of God by just abiding in him. And so they're content to wait on him, to, to wait on him to act on their behalf. They're 
They're at peace. They're at rest in the Lord. The meek are those who have been broken of their self-will. They know what it is to be to be broken through circumstances, uh, things that have caused them to suffer and mourn. They have learned to, to wait upon God in those trials, to let him deliver them instead of taking matters into their own hands. They're not, they're not grasping for power. They're not looking for recognition or just demanding their own rights all the time. And again, what a contrast this is to the ways of this world. And Paul writes of this very often in his letters. One instance is in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, and that word is also translated meekness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. And then, of course, in his description of the Lord being humble and obedient to the Father in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This is not something that comes naturally and uh, is often the result of trials in the life of the believer. Um, James again says, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the promise to those who wait on the Lord uh, and are willing to let themselves be deprived, to be misunderstood, to be unrecognized, is that they will inherit the the earth. They will lack nothing, the Lord says. And then verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what the Lord is describing here is, is discontent with, with everything, uh, both personally and in the world, that doesn't align itself with righteousness. Uh, and this is maturing in the faith, faith, progress in the faith. It's a result of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in the life of the believer. Uh, the world hungers after temporal things, food, pleasure, and it seeks to be filled with those things that, that only satisfy the flesh temporarily, but they're not lasting. And uh, unfortunately, I believe it's easy for the believer uh, to seek after these things too and to forget that the only true satisfaction is in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus said in John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, And he who believes in me shall never thirst. And there's no contradiction in what he's saying here uh, as compared to verse 6. The difference is in what is being hungered and thirsted for. Uh, Hunger and thirst for the satisfaction that this world can bring is just temporary. It's heartbreaking. It's always a letdown. But the satisfaction that is found in Christ is the opposite. It's lasting fulfillment and fullness of joy. David would write in Psalm 16, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The cup of communion with him, with satisfying that thirst and the fullness of joy, satisfying the hunger. But this fulfillment in our relationship with Christ, it, it creates a longing for more of him. And, uh, and he is eager to satisfy that longing also, both in this life and throughout eternity. Just abundance, the abundant life.
And then verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There's a, a passage in Isaiah chapter 58 where God's people were complaining to him that uh, he had not seemed to notice them when they fasted and prayed, that their worship was seemingly not accepted to God. And they were right. And so the Lord responds to them with the reason, and he shows uh, the importance in his eyes of showing mercy. So Isaiah 58, verse 6 through 10 says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go forth before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. And this is the heart of God. This is uh, the heart of love. Uh, it, it's, it's how uh, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ were reached, how we were saved. It was the mercy of God and his great love for us. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. And this was extended to us at a time when we were most unlovable. But God saw our, our helpless condition, and he sought to loose the bonds of wickedness, as Isaiah says. And so Jesus is calling the disciples' attention to the fact that they have been shown great mercy. And so great mercy is expected of them uh, to others. But we need the help of the Holy Spirit for this, of course, because the flesh is not so quick to respond uh, that way, uh, especially when we've been wronged. It loves revenge. It loves retaliation, that, uh, that sense of justice. And uh, it's very quick to see all the flaws uh, in everyone else and to forget the, the greater wrongs that it's been forgiven of, that we've been forgiven of. The natural man is helpless to keep this standard that Jesus gave, and it would be impossible for us as believers uh, were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we do exercise mercy, it's the light of God, as Isaiah pointed out, the light of God's love reaching out. Uh, as, as Isaiah said, then your light shall, shall dawn in the darkness. And then verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as we come to this beatitude, uh, I think it's important to note again that the emphasis that Jesus is making here is on what the believer is in their character uh, and not their doing to earn favor with God. And and I think that it is uh, particularly noticeable in this verse, because who can say that they have a pure heart, and uh, who has ever made their heart pure? Yet, we as believers, we have the promise of seeing God, because God has cleansed our hearts by the blood of Christ. First John one seven says, "But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin." 
And again, as these Beatitudes build upon each other, starting with a right view of the holiness of God, which leads to a, a brokenheartedness over sin and a hungering and thirsting for righteousness, uh, the life of the disciple Jesus describes here is one that, that longs to see the secret things of the heart purified also. There's a desire there for the, the glory of God, but yet they're disturbed by those things that are still in the heart, the impure motives, the ambitions, the pride, and those things that go undetected on the surface. The Bible teaches that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, the Lord knows it and amazingly has made abundant provision by his grace to cleanse us of those impurities. But love for Christ, it still longs to be pure in heart, uh, even though we have been made pure in his sight already by the blood of Christ. And there's comfort in this if we struggle with a, a guilty conscience. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, although we struggle with the flesh in this life, we will one day be free from it in the presence of God. And until that time, there's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the pursuit of this purity of heart here, it, it makes us flame brighter in this world, in our witness, because we're near to the Lord in fellowship. Something else, uh, the pure in heart are guarded against a divided heart. In other words, they're... They're guarded against loyalties or loves that are in the place of Christ. And David prayed in Psalm 86. He said, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Uh, A good prayer for us also, uh, because it's those divided loyalties that, that create so many problems. And when they are there, they put distance in the relationship with the Lord. And we don't we don't see him operating as clearly in our lives. Uh, There can be difficulty praying, uh, experiencing closeness with him. Uh, Ultimately, our our witness is dimmed. And so uh, God's word is faithful to draw our attention to those things if we have an ear to hear because he loves us and wants that closeness with us even more. And then verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this is... The culminating beatitude that Jesus gives them as they uh, as they deal with the disciple, the individual believer, it's one that really illustrates for us the outworking of the character that he already described, the poverty of spirit that has resulted from a true encounter with God and that gives an accurate assessment of ourselves, the mourning over sin and the, the sensitivity to the need for holiness that that produces, the meekness and submission that follows that in reliance upon God, and then the hungering and thirsting for more of him, for his righteousness in our lives and in the world. And from that passionate relationship uh, with the Lord, mercy flows out to the unlovely and unsaved. Purity of heart is wanted more and more and more and satisfied with, with even clearer vision of him. And the Lord says, this is the life. This is abundant life. This is the divinely happy and supremely blessed life. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And uh, and so Jesus now, he shows the disciples the effect of 
the outworking of this life, peacemaking, but not the peacemaking that the world understands. There are no peacemakers in the world uh, that can offer any lasting peace. (laughs) But the message of the gospel, it offers exactly that, and it's carried by us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Then he says, Paul, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so we see in this description of the character of the Christian, true wisdom that the world does not have. James writes, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And it's interesting that all these attributes we see in the character described by the Lord in the Beatitudes. Uh, And the result for the kingdom, his kingdom, is the fruit of righteousness harvested from the world. Save souls. The blessing for the believer uh, in this life and eternally is they shall be called sons of God. They resemble the believer, the, the very character and the mercy and the love of God. And it will be unmistakable. But that brings persecution. And so in the next three verses, the Lord says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so sinful humanity loves to darkness. It doesn't appreciate being exposed uh, scripture says this is the condemnation that, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But there are some who will respond in faith believing. And here is the character the Lord has laid out for us that, inf- that influences the world around it. And so uh, as Jesus describes it in these Beatitudes, it's, it's a supremely blessed life according to him. But we notice that the values, they're, they're completely opposite the wisdom of this world. One would hardly say that to, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake is, is a blessing. But with the Lord, everything that happens in this life is from the perspective of the eternal. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Well, as we close this morning, uh, I'd like to return briefly to verse 14. And again, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And the light is the individual. And the city is collective light. That's the church. And I think that we see in this that What the Lord intended for the life of the individual believer and also for his church is to shine the light of love, the love of Christ uh, in the circumstances that we find ourselves in, where he has placed us, dark as they may be, and also as the body of Christ. But as we examine the character that is described 
by the Lord. Uh, the character that is not only an effective witness, but a, a life that is supremely blessed spiritually. We, we notice something, and we notice that there is an intensity about it. Not, it's not an intensity of a lot of spiritual activity or, or service, as much as an intensity of love and devotion to the Lord Jesus. It's the desire to, to place him above all other loves, and just to, to be in his presence, as we sang earlier. Uh, we're reminded that our love for him is, is more important than any service we could ever do. In fact, it's critical to our being able to fulfill our purpose as light in this world. And the Lord was very serious about it. This is illustrated for us in Revelation chapter 2. And John had a vision of the Lord who came to address the seven churches. And the Lord began with a, a very gracious commendation to the church at Ephesus. He said, I, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Uh, and this was a, a description of very intense service. Uh, when he mentions labor there, it's, it, it actually means to service to the point of exhaustion and fatigue. But there was a problem that the Lord had to address. It wasn't that what they were doing was wrong, but it was what, that they, what they were doing had taken the place of true worship. It was duty without love. And so in verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I'm sorry. The Lord said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so what the Lord wanted more than their service was their heart. It was love that he was after. And if that could not be repaired, their ability to shine the light was threatened. And uh, he's addressing their witness here, not, not salvation, their fruitfulness. So a question for us then this morning, individually, is how are we doing with that? Has our love grown cold in any way? Or is there an intensity about it for the Lord? How is our witness? Is it shining the light of the love of Christ, or, or has it dimmed? If our love has grown cold, there is a remedy that the Lord gives us. He says, remember, repent, and do the first works. In other words, remember when you were new in Christ and, and eager to be in the Word, eager to pray, eager to be with the Lord, to speak of Him, uh, to be more regular in fellowship. He says, change course, do those things again. It's not dependent on feeling uh, these things, not dependent on feeling like it first or waiting for that feeling to come. It's a matter of returning and doing, and then the feelings and the, of love and de devotion come afterwards. But what's so wonderful about it is that he invites us to just come and enjoy his love for us. And John writes in his first letter, he says, Behold, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. In other words, look very closely and be in awe of the love of God for us. The, the, the result is worship and a resurgence of love for the Lord. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, But we all with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So just as the foundation for the character that uh, brings that bright witness, the poverty of spirit starts with that vision of the Lord, seeing the Lord and being in the presence of the Lord, Uh, so it is here. We are reminded of that the transforming and the renewing work of his spirit as we just come and be in his presence. There's an interesting blessing that the Lord promised to the one who would take action on what the Lord said. He says in Revelations chapter 2, verse 7, he says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree of life, we remember from Genesis, was... Um, Uh, forbidden after the fall, but it speaks of abundant life, uh, life as God intended it to be, unbroken fellowship with him and all the enjoyment of just of being with the Lord. And um, but again, it became forbidden after the fall. But what's so wonderful about drawing near to the Lord and personal devotion is that he begins to reverse the effects of the fall in us now and ultimately in eternity. He changes our heart from glory to glory into the image of Christ. And this is abundant life. This is the blessed life, the Lord says. The life that is a light in a crooked and depraved generation. So as we head out today, uh, may we overcome. May we overcome any obstacles to this uh, and avail ourselves to his love and love him with all of our heart. Let's pray. Lord, you have said in your word that you are the light of the world. And Lord, what a wonder that you have called us the light of the world as well, that you have given us this ministry of reconciliation. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make us effective, that you would give us more opportunity. And Lord, we're reminded also this morning of the intensity of your love for us as your own and also of your desire that that we love you intensely in return and so lord we ask that you would help us with that to be free from any competing love free from a divided heart and to instead be warmed in our hearts to be filled to overflowing with your holy spirit as we abide in your love this week Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ. You are in darkness and you realize that uh, you will never be truly fulfilled in this life uh, and then only to face judgment in death, God's judgment. It doesn't have to be that way. He offers you his love and he offers you his forgiveness instead if you will just receive it now. And perhaps you'll pray this prayer and mean it. Lord, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I have come now at your invitation to receive forgiveness, though, uh, through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins. I believe that. I believe that he has risen again from the dead to give me newness of life. And from this day forward, you are my Lord, and I belong to you. So, Lord, if anyone has prayed that prayer, may they be filled with your spirit, with your love, and may their salvation be sure in you. In Jesus' name, amen.